Welcome to Season 2 of Soul Conversations, a podcast where two Korean adoptees uncover the heart and soul of what it means to be both Asian American and adopted through the sharing of adoptee stories. I'm Shanae. And I'm Benny. And this week, we're sitting down with fellow Korean adoptee, Tan Ferraro. Tan, we're so excited to have you. Do you want to introduce yourself and go into a little bit about your origin story and what you're doing with life right now? Yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York in the Catskills, and it was a 2,500-person town, and I lived in a 50-person village. Um, And I think what was unique to that experience was, so my uh, brother is biological to my adopted parents, but then I also lived four houses down from three cousins that were all my age and that who were really more like siblings than cousins, and then two houses down from uh, my grandparents. And then surrounding in the village were other family members. So <laughs> super tiny town, um, super rural, kind of grew up in the sticks, surrounded by family. And then uh, as far as right now, I am physically located in Denver, Colorado. And I guess you could say that I am mentally and professionally located in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> First of all, your village sounds like trouble because <laughs> you're, you're a couple blocks down from your cousins at the same age. Mm, that doesn't, you know, that spells trouble. But yeah, also... But if she's down from the grandparents, they probably didn't get away with much either. Yeah, everyone knew true. everyone's business. That's just that's just the way you roll in the in the small town. <laughs> you basically own the whole town. You you're two thirds of the population. It sounds yes, like. yes. <laughs> so you were saying that mentally you're pretty much located in Boston, Massachusetts. You're heading back to Boston, Massachusetts, um, for a fellowship pretty soon. What kind of work do you do? So I am a human subjects research ethics professional, which is a mouthful. Um, And basically, whenever there are research studies, so if you ever see a flyer or an advertisement to be part of research, um, I'm someone that works behind the scenes approving the research. And so it's what we call institutional review boards. And institutional review boards are are within hospitals and universities and um, other research groups that are doing human subjects research. And there's a whole approval process that happens that takes in um, account for the participant experience and the ethical concerns. And then there's uh, federal regulations, state law, and then institutional policies. So, and I, um, I work for Boston Children's Hospital, so I have to make a disclaimer that anything I say is not a, re- a representation of them, of its representation of myself. Um, and then I'm going back to Boston because I was accepted into the Harvard Medical School uh, Center for Bioethics Fellowship. Wow, that's an impressive resume. <laughs> I feel so small talking on this conversation right now. I'm, I'm going to say something out of order. Please just don't, you know. <laughs> no, I'm, we're kidding. We're kidding. Congratulations. So that's exciting. So how long will you be back in Boston then for? It's undetermined, just like how life has been for the last uh, year and a half due to the pandemic. Um, You know, it's teaching us all how to be flexible in different ways. And so uh, we're trying to we'll be figuring that out. So to be continued. Yes. And um, do you want to put a plug if you live in the Denver area and you need some plants? Do you want to have have something to say? So um, One of my pandemic pastimes has been seeing uh, how well I can grow plants with propagating and germinating, and it's gotten a little out of hand. 
So I have an aggressive <laughs> amount of plants in my life at this point. <laughs> For those they're, not, they're, not, they're not making the trip. No, they're not coming to Boston. <laughs> For those of you that can't see, we're on video call with Tan right now, and behind her is just this impressively lush, beautiful <laughs> wall of plants. They're like all different colors. They're like all very um, full and beautiful, and they are absolutely stunning. So, yes, I already called dips on a few of them I can see right now. So, we'll talk later. <laughs> <laughs> Tan, so you work for Boston Children's, but you are very active in the Korean adoptee space. You work with BKA, and that was one of the reasons that we thought that it would be great to have you on here because of the work that you're doing with them. And they, it sounds like they're really kind of, and you're kind of pioneering um, some different angles and some different initiatives within the adoptee space. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so BKA, for anyone that doesn't know, is Boston Korean Adoptees, and uh, we are an educational nonprofit, and it was in the late 90s when it was founded, so we're one of the older um, organizations for, for CADS, and so basically what happened was I was moving back to Boston, and I knew that BKA existed. Um, you know, they they have a Facebook presence and social media presence. And so, and I consider myself, you know, an observer. And so I, I kind of lurked for a while and saw what was happening. And when I moved back to Boston, I saw that they were getting some research requests, like they were putting out some, this, this kind of general thing about research. And then I also saw in on the other forums, a lot of questions. So, you know, a lot of times, and Benny and Shanae, you may recognize this as well, was that, you know, people were writing their story and kind of, and then they would say something like, well, you know, I, and I wonder if this is because I'm an adoptee or do you guys experience this as adoptees, right? So it's kind of this like question. And I remember seeing a few of them and thinking, well, there's some, you know, not exacting answers, but there's some answers to this out there with research. Some of these answers exist for us or, you know, can point us in a direction to think about it. And so I, you know, approached BKA and just said, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if I can help out in this way. And so one of the first initiatives that we did was um, create, it's basically a form for researchers to request to recruit from our community. So it's really asked researchers, you know, what's your purpose? Are you an adoptee? Um, you know, well, how does this benefit our community? Would you be willing to share your results when you're done with the research? Um, that was a big thing I heard was that people participated in research but never knew what happened to their results. And so, you know, it's kind of this whole like amalgamation of things that happened that I was like, you know, I think this could be something interesting. And so what we did was um, I was able to work with BKA and uh, get on a grant cycle. So basically, we requested funding through the Korean ministry, and we were able to get funding to support a research education program within our program. And so that's what I've been building out the last couple of years is piloting some things. So one of my big goals, uh, there's basically two objectives. One is to bring in researchers to speak about their research and their findings um, for our community and make it really accessible to us. And then the other thing is um, what I, I use my kind of background in research ethics to talk about research participation and things you may want to consider if you want to be part of a research study, um, kind of the behind the scenes and the questions to ask, you know, and even 
you know, to ask, like, do you care about if the researcher is a fellow adoptee or do you not, right? Or, you know, anything from that to like, where does my data go after I tell you this information? So just kind of that thinking about the research participant experience and, you know, just kind of equipping people to be interactive and be empowered by being part of research. That's really interesting. Tan, have you seen any um, early indication of like, popular tactics that researchers are looking into or any themes that are coming out of data? Um, you know, so one of the first, uh, the piloted um, webinar series that we did, or part of the series that we did was with Nancy Siegel. Um, and she is a psychologist um, at Cal State Fullerton. And she did, so if you ever saw the movie Twinsters, she was the researcher in that study that confirmed the genetic matching of the twins and also then did the studies and talked about her findings. Um, you know, because I think what I was noticing uh, about the questions that our community was asking, like, you know, am I this way because I'm adopted, right? And really that question comes down to what we call epigenetics. So that question of nature versus nurture. And that's kind of historically that question of, is it nature or is it nurture? And really what epigenetics has said is that it's nature and nurture, right? Like your genetics interact with your environment in this way. And sometimes, you know, maybe it's more genetics, sometimes it's more nature, but it's never just like isolated usually, like that's not the case. And so that's what I was kind of seeing in the forums. And so I was like, yeah, let's, let's, you know, shoot a high and get someone that the community recognizes because, you know, when there's um, documentaries and movies and, you know, when where adoptees are featured, you know, t the community tends to, to want to be a part of that. So, um, you know, that's why I was like, why not ask? And so that's that, that was our very first uh, pilot session. That's awesome. You had mentioned, you know, asking or having people consider whether it matters to them if the researcher is an adoptee themselves or not. In terms of what you have found, particularly with researchers wanting participants from the adoptee community, would you say that having a researcher who is themselves an adoptee is like a quote unquote safer bet or does it not matter? I think it depends, right? Like, I don't think that there is a monolith to that answer because it depends what the the research question is and or the what the research hypothesis is and i think no matter what whoever the researcher is regardless of the research it can influence how the like the questions that are asked and how they go about asking it you know i think that i think we need both you know i'm kind of pluralistic about this i think that it's great the limitations of not knowing someone's lived experience if you're not an adoptee is just as important as acknowledging what bias that could cause if you are an adoptee, right? So I think that having both exist is really important and being open to both is really important because the context really, really matters. Yeah, I can, I can see that being an interesting approach just to see someone who hasn't been have this experience, those um, experiences and someone who has, for sure. I think a question that's really interesting, too, is, you know, you don't want to um, necessarily, just because someone is part of the community doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give them all your information either, right? Like, I think that there, 
and to be frank, you know, people can still be agents of harm in a community, even if they're part of that community. And I think that that's something that people have to discern personally and, you know, see what their comfort is. But I think that there is something about that conversation as well and being aware of that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of just sort of protecting your information, Tan, I know you and I had talked extensively sort of about particularly public forums, things like Facebook or, um, you know, social media and what information people provide about either themselves or their adoption or their birth parents in perhaps an attempt to reconnect with a birth family or just in asking a question. And what would you say are some things to consider or to make sure that you are doing or not doing in those types of arenas in order to protect your own information or have awareness about what you're giving away. Yeah. So when researchers are, go through what I was mentioning, institutional review boards, you know, there's all these checks and balances that exist, right? So maybe they work for an institution, meaning a university, and then the university has requirements on how data is stored, right? It could be encryption, it could be on specific servers, you know, password protected, all these things. And who has access to that information? And what happens is that gets conflated, I think, sometimes when there's just general surveys that are done um, within our communities, right? So maybe adoptees asking other adoptees and taking polls and stuff. And I think, um, so those are two very different spheres of how you're, how you're providing your data, right? And so I think what's often misunderstood, and this is something I'm really interested in, is actually data and privacy and the understanding of privacy. And generally, people care about their privacy a whole lot. Um, but at the same time, they don't, the research kind of says that they don't act in ways that see that they care, right? So think about when you're doing a terms of service, right? Like you see a terms of service, there's all these sorts of things that the terms of service say, but usually do you actually read it or do you just click, yes, okay, I'm going to download this thing, right? And so that's that's a really good, just like easy example. So for example, our community loves social media and loves providing information to each other and connecting and saying, oh yeah, like I was, this is my, you know, birth certificate. Well, so say you show a picture of your birth certificate on Facebook. Facebook is proprietary. It's a business. And now basically Facebook owns your information that you've put on Facebook. That can be problematic. I mean, some people don't care. Some people are just like, you know, this is my information. I can disseminate it any which way. But I think that that's the general assumption that it's that it's still yours, but like once you've kind of put it out there, it's out there. And it's, and when you're using platforms, especially platforms that are free, like basically you are their product. Um, so, you know, and that's, that's how they, they generate their information. Um, and data is worth its weight in gold. It, it really is. And it will continue to be that way for as long as uh, AI exists. What about something like 23andMe? So I think almost all of our guests at this point have said that they, you know, started their first step to trying to figure out who they are, establish some kind of identity or do do a birth parent search or birth family search have have done 23andMe. I've done 23andMe. I don't know, Benny, have you done it? No, I I'm thinking about it though. I'm excited to hear what's coming on this one. <laughs> <laughs> what is what is um 
sort of because you have the background, what falls into the privacy and discretion with 23andMe? How accurate is the kind of information that you get back? I know you were saying that sometimes it's a little bit misleading um, with the data that we as participants in 23andMe get back. So this is super complicated, and I am not a professional geneticist, right? But I have a kind of basic understanding of uh, how this works. So with with 23andMe, 23andMe is a business. So once you have, uh, you know, provided your spit or your swab, you know, and you send it to 23andMe, you get put into the pool. And that's with everyone else, right? And so I think, and there's been a lot of, um, I've, I've seen studies and information on social identity. Um, and it's a really complex thing because, you know, if the concept of race is a social construct, but then yet we're mapping on race biologically, right? And so then what people are seeing is like, oh, I am 90% Korean. And then I've seen people say, I'm so upset. I'm not 100% Korean. Well, the percentages are based on the other people that are also providing their genetic information. And so that's why it fluctuates because every time you, you're you kind of put in that pool and the numbers are moving. So it's it's not reading as you, you are a percentage of something. It's like within the percent of the group. And so that's why things can be very skewed and very, and, and move. So maybe you log in one month and, and it says one thing, and then you log in six months later and it changes. And, and that's why. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't even notice that it changes. I think I got my results and like never looked back. Yeah. And, and, some, and, and that's the thing. Sometimes people notice. And, but I think what uh, a question that I ask, um, you know, it's more of a philosophical question, I guess, is, you know, what is it? you know, that there's so much, one could say, undue influence, or there's so much value to us as adoptees to find out that information, right? To find out if we have genetic matches, to find out any health data, because we don't have that. And so it, it's kind of this like moral question, right? Is like, what is that worth to you, right? Because then the your genetic information is in with this business, and it's connected to other you know, information. And so I just think that it's, it's a, it's a personal question and maybe that's, that's worth everything to you. And that's okay too. It's just, we don't live in this isolated way though. And and I don't think that we should believe that that really exists. Don, I have a quick question. I want to go back to your, um, your research work that you're helping out with. You created a form for research to fill out in order to vet them and how the research force will serve the community. What kind of um, research or what kind of things are being done and what do you expect to come up for the community? So, you know, we've seen research on COVID specifically and racial identity. So basically the question of how has COVID and the pandemic and Black Lives Matter influenced your identity and your relationship with your family. We've seen kind of the genetic testing studies. You know, we've seen other just kind of social identity things. Um, There's a call out to specifically college transracial adoptees that are in college and their identity, because that seems some of the research has said that that's a really crucial time of when people, it's usually when people are like leaving their their like original like origin to like move into new spaces that may have more diversity. And so there's some research around that. There's been a range and it's been pretty exciting. What kind of research or studies do you think would be the most beneficial to particularly the the CAD community? 
Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. For my personal opinion is I see a lot of social identity questions and how that impacts the way you kind of move through the world, right? And so I personally get very curious about that. Um, our next researcher um, is Dr. Nicholas Hartlip. And he's going to actually be talking about social identity um, and transracial adoptees. And he himself is a transracial adoptee. So I know I'm personally pretty interested in hearing what he has to say. He wrote a book about the model minority myth that I'm really curious about. So, you know, I think that's the beauty of research is that there's so many questions to ask and so many interesting perspectives to take. And, you know, I feel like I I have this tiny little sliver of a view of what's out there, but it's really exciting to discover these things and, you know, connect our community to it. Yeah, Tom, that's interesting. So obviously you work in a a lot of data and research that is great for the community, but um, I'm curious to know, your personal interests of social identity and what brought you to be curious about that in your own life? Yeah, so I have, I always like to say I have this really um, kind of different background for my field. Um, so my undergraduate degree was actually in sculpture, I was a metalsmith and I was doing therapeutic arts. Uh, and so I got interested in therapeutic arts, and I was really interested in validating the field. So at the time that I was doing this, there was very little research done to the empirical research. And so I wanted to help the field say, like, you know, why why art is so great in, in therapy. So what happened is I got involved in running a randomized controlled trial, which is considered um, in some circles the gold star of research of how to do research because of the way the design is. And that led me to being curious about other research methodologies. So I was really fortunate to explore doing uh, what's called scholarly personal narrative. And so I was able to write my thesis on adult Korean adoptee identity and mentoring relationships. And so why I did it and why I did it in this way was because scholarly personal narrative is really talking about um, personal experience. And so you're inserting yourself, the re- you're, you as the researcher, into the narrative, literally. And, and then it's giving you that oh, academic wow. platform to do it. And then I was also really interested in accessibility. So writing my thesis in a way that what one can consider academic rigor, but also accessible in a language that was accessible. So actually, my thesis has this series of its epistolary. So it was letter writing. So I was able to like write a letter to my birth mother. And then I was I wrote a letter to my adopted parents. And I wrote a letter to my nieces who were adopted. And so to kind of tell the story in this really different way, So that kind of set me down the path of being really curious about research methodologies. So that's basically what I studied for my master's was just how can you ask questions? You know, that's really what that is. And then that's how I got into research ethics was because I came into the whole process of ethical review and I didn't understand it. And because I didn't understand it, I wanted to learn what it meant. And that's how I ended up where I am. Jumping away from the research talk a little bit, you had just mentioned that your nieces are adopted. Um, And I'm curious if they're also Korean adoptees and how you feel getting to watch their adoption process and watch them grow up and what that's been like. 
So they are Taiwanese. They're not they're not Korean adoptees. But I think what's really amazing, um, and especially so when I wrote my thesis, what I was finding in the literature was that it was all adoptee parent perspective. Like that's that's the take. That was the narrative that was in the research, and so that was why I did it. And I think that you know for my adopted nieces, like, how great is it that I get to tell them when they're older, like, I wrote a whole thesis, and you guys are kind of in it, (laughs) you know, because I think that there's something amazing about um, specifically, like, our generation of adoptees, right, because they're, we're coming into adulthood, right, we're adults now, and so we're filling in those narratives, we're saying that we want to be part of that research, we're saying, like, our stories are important, and so the way that communities have built, you know, online, and then also in person, those kinds of things didn't quite exist when we were, you know, their age, right? Now they're 11, so, you know, but that's, that wasn't necessarily an option, you know, I know I, went to Korean culture camp, but, you know, that put being a Korean adoptee important for like a week, you know, not like the rest of your life. So, um, (laughs) you know, so I think there's a huge shift. And I think that you always kind of want to be, I I mean, I personally want to be what I didn't have, right? So providing that kind of being just a resource is really kind of an amazing experience. Yeah. Have you noticed anything different when they're growing up around your age too, as well, when you were growing up around that time? And do they ask you any questions or do you just be there? And if they come to you, then you're always ready to hop on board. Things are different, right? They just are. I would say, so I work professionally, not just in research ethics, but I specifically have worked, done a lot of work in diversity, equity, inclusion in my field. And I can tell you that work pre Black Lives Matter and the pandemic looks a lot different now. And that has been a huge shift. And our generation and what that looked like, what identity looked like, is talked about so differently. And I think that comes with different challenges, right? But I think that some of their questions about bio parents and the process of adoption, I think those questions still exist, but I don't push that on them to ask me. I let them come to me, but you know, they're also like 11. So they may ask me this like super serious adoption question, but then they may say like, how do you do this? You know, how do you paint your nails? And you're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, and, and, and it's just as fleeting, but like, as it should be right. They're like 11, but I think it's more important that like, they know that I exist and that they know that they can ask me those questions when they're ready. You had mentioned having a community, particularly with social media. Um, And I think especially after Black Lives Matter, it seems like the CAD community in particular has really blown up, um, especially like on Instagram. I think people have really sort of found their voice and found at least a place to share their experience and find connection with other people. And I think that there are a lot of positives to that. But at the same time, when we take that community and we take the sort of wild west nature of social media and we have it meet what you do with research and data dissemination and all of that what happens and what are some you know really great things about it but also maybe what are some cautionary tales that go along with it yeah so i think to sum it up very succinctly is you know it's the game of telephone right 
So, and, and, and social media by its very nature does that. Like you're constantly kind of sharing or retweeting or, you know, packaging this kind of message that you either agree with or don't agree with. And what happens is with research, when you're talking about research, like academic research, scientific research, the context and content is so important. And so when you take that out of that space, and you kind of distill it to something that's tweetable or Instagrammable, things can be lost in translation. So one study that I was really curious about was, you know, I kept seeing the stuff about uh, adoptees and suicide. And I think, you know, I do think that there's this great work being done to raise awareness. I do also see some misrepresentation. So basically, um, I was really curious about where I kept seeing this. So where was this coming from? So the original study was done in Sweden in 2000, I think, two or 2003. And it was based on national health data. And so Sweden is a much smaller country than the US. And we in the US don't collect national health data. So you know, we don't have that comparative thing going on. But then uh, in 2013, another group in Minnesota did a study. And what they found was that adoptees were four times more likely to report suicide attempts than their non-adopted peers. And so that said, and this is this gets really complex as far as um, kind of what people may say, correlation is not causation. So there may be an association of something, but that doesn't mean that there's a causal relationship, like a cause and effect. And so, you know, I've seen things that say adoptees are four times more likely to die from suicide. And, and that's not what that research is saying. And, and I think that can have really detrimental effects for our community if that's, that's the story that we're, we're labeling ourselves with. And it doesn't say things like we're four times more likely to, to die by suicide, right? That, and I've seen that messaging. And, and, you know, that worries me too, because that is definitively not what the study is saying. But what it does say is that, uh, you know, that there is some sort of association. There's probably, you know, some third party, what we call a third party variable. So it's something else that is part of this conversation. And really, what does it really say? It says that more research has to be done on this. And, you know, I mentioned this is a study in Minnesota. One of the limitations of the study, so every study, when you read a research study, they have limitations. So things that are saying like, yeah, this isn't perfect about our study, but, you know, people should know about this. And so one of the limitations of the study was that it was only done in Minnesota. It was only three specific agencies in Minnesota. So then you have to ask about the generalizability of that study. And that's the thing is like, I think that it's easy to take this information and and generalize it very quickly you know and and that has consequence for our community when we when we take that kind of messaging and i would hate to think that adoptees are internalizing that messaging just because they think there's a scientific study that said this you know and that's not to discredit any work that's being done in awareness or any advocacy in that way it's just saying like you know by all means i would say like advocacy for more research, right? Like, let's find out more information about our community, which kind of feeds back to the BKA stuff that we're doing. We're saying, like, let's be, you know, part of this. Let's be empowered to participate in research, know what we're signing up for, you know? There's kind of in identity groups, there's in in research, there's this kind of motto of nothing about us without us. And so why wouldn't we want to 
kind of take that point of view about our community. So that's kind of how it all connects together. Yeah, I think that's so important to have that discussion because we were talking earlier how sometimes we just read headlines or we scroll through our timelines and we see a piece of data or a stat that may not be completely vetted out or being accurate. And people might see that and just assume that we are falling in line with this identity or something that's going to happen to us in the future because we were born a certain way. And so I, I think it's critically important to that we're taking more time to do more research, especially on Korean adoptees. And I guess that kind of brings the question up, um, Tom, you're so close to this work. How do you feel the data with Korean American is compared to the rest of minority groups and people of color? And I'm assuming a lot less, but what about the data for Korean adoptees? Do you feel like there's a lot of accurate representation of data for you know our groups or um, is there still a lot to be figured out? This is a super interesting question, Benny, because Korean adoptees specifically, we're one of the largest cohorts of adoptees, right? And so when it comes to research, it's great to have numbers, right? The, the holy grail of research is always recruiting enough people to be in research. And so that's what makes specifically CAD so unique. And at the same time, you don't necessarily want to overshadow other groups, right? And so I think that's kind of the kind of pluralistic. uh, And when I say pluralistic, I mean, there's room for more than one study to happen and the need for more than one study to happen to cover the different communities. And I think what's also interesting, and and it's not centralized, right? So you have researchers doing uh, research at all these different institutes. And given that, like, yes, they're probably aware of each other in, in their field, you know, because it's not a huge field, but like, you know, it's, it, it exists. But there is a question of who is signing up to do these studies right now, right? Is it the same people that keep volunteering themselves? Or is it, you know, you know, are, are they getting a much broader sample of us? Or is it really the people that are most engaged in the community? Because I think that's really telling of adoptees that are really engaged in communities um, versus the ones that kind of, you know, were like me before I came to BK as like kind of a lurker and I kind of sat back you know, and I just kind of was seeing what's, what was happening. And so, you know, I think that that's a pretty interesting question, but that's what the scientists have to figure out, right? And that's why, again, you know, with BKA, we're trying to say, like, if you're curious about these things, this is a way that, you know, the first time you see a consent isn't when you're being asked to be part of a study. It's like, you know, we're talking about what are those parts of a consent and what are you signing up for and what does that mean? So again, like, how can we better empower our community to be part of this conversation? Yeah, that's so interesting. I wonder too, uh, maybe you had to answer this too, but I wonder if there are a lot of people who are willing to be part of a research project later in their lives if they're Korean adoptees. And this is just a small sample size, but I feel a lot of our guests, similar to myself and Sinead, maybe you too as well, always kind of shied away from our Korean heritage earlier in life until maybe our 20s or even 30s, we started to be uh, more interested in learning about ourselves. And I'm wondering if that ever plays into a unique role with the people that are submitting their information. 
That's interesting. And I don't know what kind of studies are happening because, and you can't kind of, unless somebody's been doing a longitudinal study, right? So a study that goes from length of time of, of, of mapping that identity, maybe that does exist. But again, I think things have been shifting. So you have the generation of adoptees that are, you know, their parents are more engaged because adoptees have spoken and said, you should probably be aware of these things. And they've had that kind of feedback. And so that's part of the culture of adoption, right, is to have adoptees more engaged in their um, heritage, their different cultural heritages. And so I think there's something that's happening with that, you know, and I think right now we're kind of playing catch up because like I said, traditionally the research that was done was a focus from the adoptive parents perspective. And now, so you see a lot of the research is like adult adoptee experience because we're, we're kind of saying like, well, there's this huge gap in the literature. So we need to, we need to address that. And I think it will accumulate over time. So to be continued. I wonder too, just in terms of the larger areas of data around Asian Americans or Asians in the United States, I would imagine, and maybe this is just too presumptive, that kind of to your point, Benny, that like we didn't really identify as being adoptees, like, and definitely didn't want to identify as being Asian. Um, so I think even in my early 20s, you know, if somebody had come to me and said, you know, do you want to participate in this data as an Asian American, I would have been like, no. Like, you know, just, yep. you know, that that's not me or yeah. I wouldn't volunteer. I wouldn't volunteer for something like that because I didn't see myself as being Asian American. And particularly when it seems as a group of people, Asian Americans are not necessarily the most participatory in certain studies and in certain things. I wonder if the adoptee representation is even more lacking in those spaces. You know, it's, it's curious. And I think this is a challenge, right? Like, where do we monolith ourselves and where do we create our subgroups and how is that important and how does that show itself? And I think those are all really good questions. Like, how do you, how do you capture these things? I think that there's a history, obviously, of, you know, when we talk about Asian Americans, that there's this monolith, but then when you when you look at research that exists, there's huge disparities between Asian subgroups. I read a, a study that was mind blowing to me was that the original medical research done on what was categorized as Asian Americans were wealthy Japanese men because they could speak English. Those were the people that were researched because they could speak English. And then yet that was the categorization of Asians even when there were multiple subgroups that existed. <laughs> and so when you yeah. think about that history, what that does is that speaks to the most privileged part of a group, and it really shadows those that are underrepresented. And that's wildly problematic. We know that's wildly yeah. problematic. And yet that's, mm -hmm. that's our history. And that's something I think that, you know, honestly, like we, in, and I say this, we, very collectively in the not just in the research community, but in our much larger community have to reconcile it, you know, that history and what that looks like. Just, just imagine you have a crystal ball and you can look into the future. What do you feel about the next generation of Korean American adoptees? And what kind of research would be available to them when they're in their 20s and 30s who are maybe now, you know, entering the preteens? Do you feel like there will be ample amount of 
research and resources for them. You know, we talked about all of us maybe growing up and without having a computer or the Encyclopedia Britannica or not a lot of reputation in media. You just talked about all the gaps in uh, the research and maybe some underrepresentation. What do you feel like the future generation will grow up with or maybe not having the research quite there yet? I think it depends on us, the current community now, because the reality is if there is not demonstration of need, if there's not demonstration of participation, there's not going to be research findings. And the research is a community and is an ecosystem. You know, it's huge. There's funders, there's sponsors, there's the researchers, there's the institutions. And then, you know, you go out bigger to the fields. And the reality is, is like, if we don't participate now, it's going to be lacking. And then this next generation is going to be just as lacking as our generation, right? And I can say... What's been amazing to see is like I've seen the kind of communities of uh, repositories of like, oh, you want to read, you're interested in somebody's uh, research and like here all the ones that adopsies have done, right? Like kind of a repository of links and stuff. And so, you know, I think some of that exists, but I think we're just getting started because like I said, a lot of us are adults now. Um, There's a lot of young adoptees that are getting curious about the world and about what's out there and what's not. Um, And hopefully they're, you know, thinking pretty critically and analyzing and saying, like, I'm really curious about this and I want to find out more. So, you know, I think that it all, at the end of the day, your your answer, uh, Benny, is it depends. It really depends on, on the community as a whole to take that responsibility on. It sounds like we all have a lot of meaningful work to do in that area. Do you have any thoughts on how our generation can be more involved? And I'm speaking uh, to the ones on this call right now, or even, I guess, anyone. But is it just being really open to doing your research and finding reputable options to provide information? Uh, Is it supporting or engaging with other nonprofits like yourself? What do you think we can do as Korean adoptees to help support getting more research done? I think it's all of the above of what you said. <laughs> you know, I think that's been a huge question in, in this pandemic, in post-Black Lives Matter, in protests. I think a lot of people are asking, what can I do? And I think that it really matters how you want to engage, right? Like, I think that people have to have an honest discussion with themselves on how they, they want to engage. And, you know, I personally, like, I'm like, okay, I have these really specific professional skills. And like, I want to help my community in this way. So this is what I'm personally doing. But that's not the best fit for everyone, right? But I think that overall, like my personal ethos, it really follows the civil rights lawyer, Brian Stevenson. So if you've ever heard of the movie, and the book, uh, Just Mercy, uh, I highly recommend it. But basically, his whole thing is talking about the shift in consciousness about how we think about privilege and how we think about systems. And so he's really talking about if you want to get involved in a community, you know, something super important for any sort of change is proximity to that community and really being a part of it, you know. And then it's really that the next step is like thinking about what are those narratives that are myths So for like the Asian community, you know, we have the model minority myth, 
literally. So, you know, how do how can we challenge that myth and challenge that narrative for ourselves in our community? Um, and then his next step is hope. So, um, you know, that kind of just general persistence of hope that, you know, this is meaningful and this is important. And then his last step is thinking about inconvenience. So really that systems exist and that we can exist comfortably in the systems that exist, but that's exactly how we got where we are. So we need to challenge those things and ask ourselves, do we want to be comfortable in this or do we want to push against this because it's maybe not the right or best thing for our community? So that's my general, that's kind of my ethos around that because um, I think that he does really meaningful work, but he kind of has distilled the to really simple things that you can reflect upon yourself and ask yourself, like, how do you want to engage with the world and in what way? Well, I mean, I'm psyched up. You know how you sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and you're just like, I need to get my life together in these areas. <laughs> I just feel like... <laughs> I just you're just like you're just like a coach it just like psyched me up like I need to do something awesome well I think that's a huge part of it is right it's like I think the part about hope I think really that speaks to like building your community and like having your people like having your people that you can say what is this nonsense or like what is this ridiculousness or like this was my big win today you know and like and have people there to celebrate with you and so I love it like grow our village like you know, see, there's like, you know, power in numbers. So I love it. Yes. And uh, oh, my gosh. Sorry about the dilemma of trying to get to Boulder from Denver. <laughs> like, I'm. <laughs> this is like an inside joke, but like, oh, my gosh, I, we'll have to all get together before you head back to Boston. And then and uh, Sinead's, you're heading out to the West Coast sometime soon, too. Yeah, I'm very, um, very much living that urban life still. So we are carless, but I a very good moral support for carpooling. For those of you who don't know, we had a Korean adoptees of Denver Boulder meetup and Benny is down in Tan's neck of the woods closer to Denver. And I think was maybe going to give her a ride, but then was going to just go disappear in the mountains for a while. So she had no way to get back. And so that's what they're referring yeah. to. Just catch people up. <laughs> yes. Yes. I felt I had so much dilemma. I'm like, I can't let Tan go. No. Like she needs to come along. And then- I mean, that's, that's great, uh... the great thing about our communities, right? And communities that exist online too, is like, there's like opportunities to like meet up with people and chat with people. And, you know, there's, there's always going to yeah. be a next time. So I, I am not concerned. Absolutely. Our final question is, while we are continuing to share adoptee stories, we're also focused on the important message that our adoptions are not necessarily what all defines us. That being said, do you have anything going on that you wanted to talk about? It's really important to you right now. You know, I think as far as my identity that I'm really proud of that I don't always, you know, maybe isn't as obvious is, you know, I consider myself an artist. I consider myself a maker um, and a doer. And so I definitely have a very like punk rock DIY ethos in my background, which is very surprising to people that are in research compliance. I don't think that's the norm. (laughs) So, you know, I think I'm really proud that I bring that kind of background to the work I do and to the community. That's awesome. Wait, so what would be the the most surprising thing about you when when they get to know the punk rocker side? Like what's like, whoa, it would not have known. 
I mean, I was really fortunate to be in Boston during the major indie hardcore scene. So, you know, I definitely um, part of that kind of community. And that's a community <laughs> of like resourcefulness, actually. Like when it comes down to it, it's all about yeah. like do it yourself, like figure it out, use your resources. And so, you know, I don't think that comes up in my conferences too often, but I think that, uh, you know, that's, those are kind of some traits that work out pretty positively in the end. <laughs> yes. This is, uh, did it influence your music taste at all? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in Boston, um, so there's uh, Converge is a big ba- Boston band. And so there's Converge and Isis, Old Man Gloom, Doom Riders, and they're, they're all kind of interconnected in different ways. And so, you know, it was really this kind of its own little music moment. So I found that pretty inspiring that they created their own label and then they were making their own uh, cover art. And that kind of resourcefulness is, I think, a great kind of ethos to have. So yeah, that's that's definitely been been a big part of my my music and <laughs> which I think is surprising to a lot of people because let me tell you, there there weren't many like girls around <laughs> there also were really, yeah. um, little Asian girls running around. So <laughs> um, <laughs> at least I didn't see them. Um, but that doesn't mean that they didn't exist at all. It's just, there weren't that many of us. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast and dropping some knowledge on us. <laughs> so excited to have really great guests and Sinead, do you want to close or do you want me to close? Sure. I can close. Somebody's just protesting bedtime, but she's good. She's just hanging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have uh, a quick appearance by Clara right now. <laughs> yes. I love it. She was very loudly telling Dad that she did not want to go to bed right now. Oh, <laughs> to echo what Benny said, this has been an awesome second season. We're excited to see what season three brings you in the coming months. But thank you all for listening. And you can follow Tan on Instagram at Insulyoon. We'll make sure that we have that written out for you. And as always, follow us on Instagram at Soul Conversations. Check out our website, www.soulconversationspodcast.com. And feel free to send us an email at soulconversationspodcast at gmail.com. Have a wonderful week, and we will catch you all on Season 3. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs>